Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you will be encouraged and empowered by this week's message and you would encounter God wherever you're listening from. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now, let's go into this week's message. But one of the reasons for that is because of the financial strain of Christmas. And so today's message is going to be a bit more Proverbs than it is Psalms, a bit more wisdom than it is praise, a bit more guidance for life than it is revelation. And so this is, you've been on my heart because for, for the Reeser house, when the Christmas tree goes up, that also means the Christmas budget comes out too. And that is, <laughs> that's not my favorite meeting. I mean, uh, I love to hang with my wife. She's my favorite person. But budget meetings are not my favorite meetings. And so I've just been reflecting on what, what, why is that? Why is there so much anxiety and stress around this, this season? Why do we feel such a, um, a demand on us make this mind-blowing and to, to spend more than, than we make and to focus on all the wrong things in this season, it seems. And we've already experienced that. Like, even though the Christmas tree is up at our house, we, we went, um, uh, we have kind of a little tr- Christmas tradition we like to start where as a family, we go together to the Christmas tree farm, pick it out. Um, I, ha- I bring the, the, the bow saw with me, and it's like I feel like a lumberjack. It's just like I feel like my, my like balance of man points are just like skyrocketing just because I'm walking around with a saw in my hand. It's the only time of the year I touch a saw. But this year, for time's sake, uh, Stacy just went and got a tree, just went and got a budget tree. And so she came, she came back and one of our kids was so disappointed because she, it wasn't about, it wasn't just about the tree for her, it was about the experience. Like, I want that experience. And already, we're not even in Christmas, I'm like, I'm already getting it wrong. I'm already getting it wrong. I thought the kids would love a tree, but it wasn't that. And that's, that is such a spirit of this season. It's like, we kind of mix things up, don't we? And so the beautiful thing to me about God's word is that his word speaks into every area of our lives. And even Pete talking about finances a bit ago, it's like I'm so glad that that's a big part of my life. I'm so glad that that God actually has an opinion on that, that he's not indifferent towards that part of my life, towards the material part and the family part and those elements. So today I have a pastoral word on my heart just to help guide us through the season. This week I was reading, uh, I read an interview by a lady, they called her in the article Paula, but that, that wasn't her real name, so we'll stick with that, that moniker. Paula was her name, and they were highlighting her because this article was talking about the debt that people often go into in the Christmas season. And Paula uh, had specifically 30,000 pounds of credit card debt from Christmas. And so that's a pretty extreme situation. And they, they were asking her, you know, what, why is that? So she kind of explained her story. She grew up in a rough situation. Her mother was an alcoholic. And every time around Christmas, it's like her mom snapped out of it and decided, 
I want to be, I want to be the parent I wished I was all year. And splurged on Christmas. It was a really big thing. And that got something in, in her psyche. And then she, she grew up, became an accountant, started her own business, and had a, kind of a lot of means then. And then she started buying things, not just for herself, but everybody else. And then she said this. She, this is what Paula says in her interview. I would buy gifts for other people and donate gifts to charities for my own validation. The charity would say I was great, and it became very addictive for me. The whole time, I was spending money I didn't have. I was making my life harder, trying to make everyone else happy. And maybe Paula's case is, is extreme, but her situation is certainly not unique. According to stats by the money charity, each Adult in the UK spends, on average, 112% of your annual earnings. Uh, in the UK, we spend an average of 140 million pounds every day in interest on personal debts. Every day. A study done at this same time of the year, last year in, in 2020, by a debt charity called Step Change, found that two-thirds of people, right here in the middle of November, two-thirds of people in the UK are already struggling to afford Christmas. Already. We're not even there yet. And this message certainly isn't to shame anybody in the room. Oh my heavens, no, not at all. But it is to paint a biblical vision for how we're meant to interact with this. I, I don't think it, would, it takes a stretch of the imagination to realize we have maybe a skewed relationship with, with this, with, with materials, with goods, with, with spending, with money. There's something that's not quite gelling. I don't think that's a stretch to any of us. And maybe you feel like you're in a great place. Maybe this has been a source for you of, of shame and guilt. Either way... There's a path, there's a way that Jesus lives, and we have an invitation today to come on to that path. Amen? The first thing I want to do is I just want to pull back the covers on one of the reasons why the struggle is so hard. And some of this for you is going to depersonalize it, and I, I hope that that sets you free a bit, because I'm not into conspiracy theories, it's just not the way I'm wired, but... When it comes to material goods, there's a conspiracy against you. It's actually for you, and it's for your money, and it's, for, it's, for, it's to open up your wallet. And there's an economist named John Kenneth Galbraith, and, and, and he explains kind of some of the thinking behind our economy. Can I do that? I wish there was time to go into the history of this, because we could go back to the turn of the century, World War I, and, uh, and then the Roaring Twenties, and then World War II, and what happened in manufacturing, and in sociology, and in um, uh, public relations, and we can, we can actually track the history of why are we today in this place where we're spending 112% of what we make every year. But I'm just going to give you kind of a snippet of that. Let's look what John Galbraith says here. He says, goods are plentiful. He's talking about in, in the modern age. If you compare this to 100 years ago, this wasn't the case. But today, goods are plentiful. Demand for them must be elaborately contrived. This is an economist. He's describing our economy. Goods we can, we can create as much goods as, as we desire in the world. And what he's saying, to keep our economy alive, 
you're in my demand, it must be contrived. Those who create wants, and what about that phrase? Like you don't come into the world with a want, just with a want. Actually, marketers, they create wants in us. Those who create wants rank amongst our most talented and highly paid citizens. Want creation, a.k.a. advertising, is a $10 billion industry grabbing your attention. I mean, you realize that you like to look at your family's pictures on Facebook, but Facebook could not care less about your family's photos, right? They're, they're farming your information, your data, and then they use that data to understand you more to do this to you, to advertise to you more, to grab your attention, to sell you more stuff, okay? I wish we could go into this more. There's a retail analyst. He said this in 1955, actually. Uh, Victor Lebeau, look what he says. He says, our, enormous, our enormously productive economy, this is the post-war economy, demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of good into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. You think we live in a secular society. We don't. We've just changed religions. Christianity may not be the most prominent religion anymore in our nation, but we're not an irreligious people. Have you been to the Temple of Materialism, a.k.a. the Trafford Center, recently? <laughs> the only other building I get that same emotion from when I, when I drive up to it is the Parthenon in Athens. With these, with these marble statues. I'm like, that was a place of worship. Do we realize that? We have a religion. They may, they might, may not be a man on a cross, but we're religious. We have our rituals. We, we have our spiritual satisfaction. We have our ego satisfaction. And it's just not based around Jesus. Let me introduce you to a man called Edward Bernays. He is the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He's commonly called the father of public relations. He basically invented modern public relations. He is, he's one of the, the masterminds behind the way the, the modern marketing in, in consumption um, is created. This is, this is what he said. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. He was not um, indirect about his methods of employing marketing tactics. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. This was actually said, folks. <laughs> We're governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, and our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. Look at this last point. It is they who pull the wires that control the public mind. He was a marketer. 
Do you know who used his writings? His, one of his most seminal works was a book called Propaganda. The Nazi Party in World War II. The same thinking is what governs our system of consumption, our consumer economy. What makes you want that new iPhone even though the one you have works perfectly well? They created things. I wish we had time to go into things that they created intentionally, like planned obsolescence. I'm sure you've heard of that. Where they realized for us to sell more goods, we've got to make sure the goods we sell don't last too long so people buy more. That, that, that's a planned thing. And, and they have to find the balance between it's got to be long enough that people, when they buy it and it wears out, they don't feel, ah, they feel like they got their money's worth but not so long that it keeps them out of the store to buy another one. And after they found that balance, they created another, they, another theory inside of marketing, and it's not planned obsolescence, it's called perceived obsolescence. It's when something actually hasn't worn out, but I perceive that I need a new thing. It's, it's perfectly fine, it's, it's meeting my needs, so then they create a different thing. They, that's why every ad, it has nothing to do with the product itself. It's just showing people that you wish you were them. Because the thing they're selling is not the product. The thing they're selling is the life you wish you had. Is this opening anybody's eyes today? This is not an accident. It's not an accident when, when, when you pull up a, a commercial for a rental car that it shows two ridiculously beautiful people driving in a place you and I will never go and having a better time than any human has ever had in the history of the world. And they're trying to get you to rent a car because they're trying to appeal to that thing in you that is dissatisfied with life without you ever realizing that you weren't dissatisfied until you saw the ad. So what they do is they, is they don't just meet needs, and then they don't just meet wants. Marketers now create wants. So they're making you think you miss something you already have. Anybody reminded then of Genesis? Anybody reminded of Genesis chapter 2? Where the enemy came to Adam and Eve and is lied. Just let me Theo, no Theo if I need to pick up this guy. And the, the, the enemy came to Adam and Eve, and the lie he gave them was, you don't have something that God had already given them. It's the original sin, and we're still pulled with it today. And, and not only are we pulled with it, but our lives are engrossed in this economic system, this system of consuming. And as we're going into this next season, I want to make you aware of this. Awareness is step one, and then step two is, to, is, to, is for us to reimagine our lives from Jesus' perspective and then commit to that perspective.
Can I read a passage of scripture to you to kind of get into the biblical perspective on this? Let's, let's read Matthew 6. It's a lot of reading, so I need you to kind of to stay focused. It's a familiar passage, so you're going to know it. But if you want to open up your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's really cool. Um, he he kind of dives into, so Matthew 5, 6, 7, he dives into this long discourse on what it means to live in the way of Jesus, to follow his lifestyle. Because if you are new to the Jesus thing, first of all, so glad you're here. Maybe, uh, maybe faith is just a brand new thing to you. Um, uh, applaud you for not being freaked out by people dancing and raising their hands during worship and sticking around to hear some dude with a strange accent talk. So, but I'm glad you're here today. But um, if you are new to faith, Christianity is so much more than just like acknowledging there is a God, it's, it's going that next step and realizing that Jesus modeled a way for humanity to flourish. And it's now our life goal to follow that way of flourishing. And when we find that way of flourishing, we'll get to see the fruit uh, that, that that life produces. So here's Jesus speaking in that, that message. Matthew 6, we're going to read verse 21 all by itself and then read 24 through 34. Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus clarifies what he's saying here. You cannot serve both God and money. Maybe your translation says mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well therefore don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble on its own isn't that a beautiful passage of scripture it's just incredible the the care of of our father for us and him even identifying that some of our some of our concern for all these things is anxiety and our trust in him. And then he realigns our pursuits, the order of our internal world, our soul, by saying, seek first God's kingdom. It's just beautiful. Way more than you could ever explore in one message. But I love what Doug Jones says here in kind of summating, and he doesn't mince words with, 
with this passage. He says, uh, this is what he says, you cannot serve both God and mammon or the, the God of money or materialism. Jesus didn't deny that money was a God. Isn't that interesting? Jesus understood the antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. He didn't divide the world into left versus right or liberal, liberal versus conservative or the envious versus the entrepreneur or Christian versus Muslim. Jesus didn't make mammon just a side temptation for a few like we do. He singled it out as the direct competitor to God. He never contrasted the idols of sexuality or knowledge or the earth in such stark opposition to God. Isn't that amazing that Jesus brought this on? And I, first, I just want to be clear, this is not an anti-message, I mean anti-money message or an anti-having things message. I have, I have friends who are wealthy and some, some friends that I have who are wealthy are some of those generous, Jesus-centered, um, loving, compassionate people I know. And I know people who have very, very little. And sometimes they are some of the most greedy, selfish, not Jesus-centered people I know. Does that make sense? And it, it can be either one. So this is not a message about having things or not having things. This, is not, uh, uh, this is, does not mean over Christmas that I, I want you to buy absolutely nothing for yourself or your family. That's not the point of this message. It's about comparing God from one of his chief competitors. And that's the God of money, the God of want, the God of consuming. And so today, here's, what I'm, here's where I'm going to hang my hat for the rest of this, this message. It's this next slide. Um, I'm going to talk about four antidotes to materialism. Four antidotes. If we live in this world where literally billions of pounds a year are being spent to grab your attention and monetize it, that's pretty close to a disease to me. And so I want to talk about some antidotes. And the beautiful thing about antidotes to this is, is I didn't make these up. These are in Scripture. And Jesus alludes to them. And Jesus, more than any other topic, I'm, I'm about to... to confuse you a bit. Do you know more than any other topic Jesus spoke about money? More than any other topic. More than faith, more than love, more than compassion. Jesus spoke on money. Why? Because he realizes its ability to lure us away from God. So this is about putting it into its rightful place and changing our relationship with it. The first antidote to materialism is perspective, perspective. And this is what I want you to remember. There's more to life. The first question Jesus asks in that, that message on the Sermon on the Mount that I just read, first question he asks in this message on money and things is this. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. This process of stepping back from our lives, our needs, and our wants, and looking from heaven's perspective, a perspective not trapped by time, trouble, or temptation, this stepping back helps free us from the tyranny of our stuff, being consumed by our stuff. I want to prepare you for Black Friday next week. <laughs> Solomon, of all people, 
the wealthiest king in Israel's history and the story of God's people in the Bible. One of the wealthiest people, historians tell us, in human history. He, he, written, he wrote an incredible book called Ecclesiastes, and in it he looks at, at our human longings and our pursuits, and he compares it to, um, to, to the way it satisfies. And he talks about this desire. And here's what he says. Look in Ecclesiastes chapter number one. This is what Solomon, now think about his, his, his amount of wealth. This is what he says. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? What do they get? Rivers, and then, then he uses a metaphor. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Solomon's talking about that dynamic in us to always want more. And he compares it to a river running in the sea, but the sea never overflows. And he's saying that's how our desire for more is. The good news is he doesn't leave us at just the diagnosis. He identifies, here's, here's actually what's happened a couple chapters later in Ecclesiastes 3. This is what he says, I've seen the burden God has placed on us all. He's, how, he's, how he's saying why there's something in you that can't ever be full. He says this, God has planted eternity in your heart. Do you know something about that desire in you? This is a principle that's important to understand right here. Only an eternal source can fill an eternal desire. You see, one of the reasons why they can keep selling us stuff that never fills the void is because we're trying to fill an eternal void with a temporary solution. And only an eternal source can fill an eternal desire. Let, let me say this a different way. God hardwired you to need him, and that need can only be met by him. You've tried to meet it other ways. I've tried to meet it other ways. Status, wealth, more stuff, great friends, pleasure, whatever it could be. And all of those things are good in and of themselves in the right place. But when you're trying to fill an eternal desire with a temporal source, you will always be the sea who's receiving rivers and never overflowing. The beautiful thing is, we have an eternal source. <laughs> We're not left with an eternal desire and only temporary solutions. This is what the history of the people of God, this is what the people in this book, this is what the, the book of Psalms especially is full of. People exclaiming to God, I finally found what I'm looking for. Sorry, Bono, and you too. I finally found it. Psalms 107 says this, For God satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Isaiah says it like this. This is Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah. This is his version of Ecclesiastes. Why do you spend your money for that which does not, that's which isn't bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat 
what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. How, what is that food? Well, Jesus tells us, John, Chick, John 6, 36, Jesus said to them, I'm the food. <laughs> I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you've, coming, if you've come here today believing that Christianity or following Jesus or faith is about repressing thirst or, or living this restrictive life, it isn't. This principle is important to understand. Christianity, it's this next one, Christianity isn't about repressing your desires. It's about satisfying them with real, genuine, authentic life. Come on. This is not a practice in behavioral modification or desire repression. It isn't restrictive in that way. It's about guiding those desires to a place that can actually fill them. The first antidote to materialism in this season is perspective. It's realizing life is more. Life is more than this. And I have these desires that these things could never fill. The second antidote to society is praise. Praise. If you think we just like to sing songs uh, at the beginning of our service because we like the style of music... It's not the case. Even though, isn't our band awesome this morning? Weren't they great? Come on, yes. During that first song, I was just, I was just like stand there. It's like, man, I, like, I want to worship God, but right now I'm just like enjoying you guys. Like. But we praise because it does something to us. It reminds us of the source of life. It puts us back into right relationship with the source. It's amazing when you look at the cycle of God's blessing and God's people in this book. Uh, if you've never read the Bible, it's mainly stories, just to let you know, which can either be awesome if you like stories or frustrating if you like rule books. Because <laughs> it isn't like an operating manual. Uh, this is not that. It's not like, how do I work this thing called life? Okay, let me see, page, you know. 13, how to parent. Uh, it, it isn't that. It's stories of people who followed God. And then you get to see their experiences with hearing from them and screwing up. And uh, I like those parts because it makes me feel normal. And, and then getting it right sometimes. And that journey, it takes time. There's nuance. There's, there's this, beautiful, um, this beautiful journey that we get to see. But one of the things we see about that cycle of God's people is we see this over and over again. Is step one, God blesses them. Step two, they forget that it was God who blessed them, and they think, I did this. <laughs> Step three, they stop following God because they really dig the stuff that he gave them. Step four, they walk straight into judgment because they left God's path. Step five, they return to God because they realized God's better than stuff. Step six, God blesses them. <laughs> And the cycle starts again. We see that over and over and over. It's amazing because God knew that was going to happen before it even happened. At the beginning of this story, Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is letting Israel know, you're about to go into the thing, the place I promised you, because they were in slavery in Egypt. He, he got them out of slavery, and he goes, I'm, act, I'm going to actually give you a home. 
So he says, now before you go into that home, I want to let you know right now, I provide everything you need. So you can't forget me because I literally create your food every day and make it miraculously appear on the ground when you wake up in the morning. I provide your every need. You're in the middle of a desert and I create water out of nothing. So there's this supernatural relationship. But he says this, you're about to go into a land where just the product of your life is going to produce everything you need and want. Don't forget me. He lets him know. And this is what he says. Watch this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. When you have eaten and are satisfied, when you're done with Christmas dinner, when you've opened the presents and there's paper everywhere, or are you one of those that every time a present's open, you have to fold the paper because you're keeping it for later? Are you one of those and stack it up? Whichever version you are, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Did you, did you catch that? It's amazing. We, read, we just read through the Bible quickly, but the Bible uses an incredible economy of language. It packs a lot into a little bit of space. So you need to read slowly. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord. Failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his degrees that I'm giving you to this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied. Notice he didn't say any of these things are bad intrinsically. He's saying when you receive them, then your heart, if you forget me, will become proud and you'll forget, forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land. He's trying to use emotional language to go, don't forget. Do you remember when you had no other way out and God came through? Do you remember that? Some of you, some of you it's, it's been so long, you've forgotten. God's saying, don't forget. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land. With its venomous snakes and scorpions, he brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known. He did something new in your life. To humble and test you so that in the end, it might go well with you. This is what you're saying. You're saying, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And in this he confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. There's nothing wrong with those things. The issue is, when we don't give God the praise he's worthy of. Because this is what you need to understand about praise. It's the next principle. Praise anchors your heart in God. <laughs> praise anchors your heart in God. Some of us have moved past God and we're living in the fruit of what he's given us. Sometimes that's just the fruit of your own abilities, which you did not choose. I mean, I don't know about you. I did not get to fill out a questionnaire before I was born about the gifts and talents that I had. Because I certainly would have chosen a different physique. I'm not sure about you guys. But this tiny body 
is not too great at the gym. I don't know about you. What, what would you have put on the questionnaire? Nobody got to choose that. Your abilities themselves were given to you by God. <laughs> you didn't choose that. You didn't choose that. He gave you the ability to produce what you're doing. So number one, it's perspective. Number two, praise. And number three, this is a, this is a, a biblical antidote, giving. Remember tithe, generosity, and the poor. I love what Jesus says right here. 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Giving is something God built into the life of the kingdom to disconnect our hearts from the things we're finding our value and our identity in. Have you ever noticed like one of the first words little kids learn is, and is just this such a pleasant four-letter word and it normally comes out like this, mine. If you ever hear little toddlers playing in a room, at some point you're going to hear, mine! And there sounds like there's a struggle and then relief. Mine. mine! They walk around saying that. Mine! Mine! I feel like we walk around in our lives saying that sometimes. We get more sophisticated and add some words to it. But essentially what we're saying is, mine! Mine! This car, mine! These clothes, mine! Mine! Why did God build in giving into our lifestyle as, as Jesus followers? Because it breaks the hold of mine off of us. Come on, yes. Giving is hard to talk about in church. And it's hard to hear too, I get that. Because this is a charity and all of our needs are provided for by donations. By the, the, the finances that you guys give. And so it's, this is a weird thing, but I don't want to shy away from it because of that. I, I, I don't like talking about giving. I don't like talking about finances. One of the things that gives me peace in that is, is I remember back before I was a church leader that one of the ways God, God incredibly worked in my life was through giving. There was something that happened in my life when I, when I found Jesus. It's like, and I think as I just saw other people doing it, and it's, it just awakened something to me. I just want to give. I just want to give stuff away. It was a supernatural thing that happened in my heart. But the other thing is when I look at Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's actually receiving an offering, and he teaches on giving at the same time. So I'm like, okay, well, if Paul can do it, we can be in this thing. Is it okay if I talk about this? And there not be there not be this kind of a, a thing. Does that you see what I mean? I think the best way to, to say it is just to get out in the open there. But tithe is not a commandment for us in the New Testament. It isn't. But it is a biblical principle. And the biblical principle is this: first and best. We see that all through Scripture. People giving first. What does it mean to give first? It means that before I I, I cut a check for my electric bill. I decide to give and how much I'm going to give. I don't wait till the end to see how much is left over. Does that make sense? I'm committed to be a giving person. And tithe literally means 10%. If you didn't think we were crazy by worship, now you really think we're crazy. People actually give away a percentage of their income. Yes. 
But I love what Craig, Craig Blomberg, who is one of the, the, the most preeminent New Testament scholars today, says. He actually, he says, although tithe is not a New Testament thing, he, he believes in what's called gradiated tithe and in the modern world. And what he says is, because everything's God's, first of all. But we should view our perspective of, if I have more, I should give more. Can I just be completely honest? It's been years since Stacy and I have given 10%. We left 10% behind years ago. We give more than 10%. Why? Because I love to give. I love it. I love to give. I want to give. And my goal is to, is to year over year give more. Stacy and I sit down. Part of our giving budget for Christmas, part of our budget for Christmas involves giving. And I don't say that because I want to pat on the back. I'm just being real. I want to live this stuff. I don't just want to preach this stuff. Does that make sense? And the biblical principle is first and best. I want to give to God and then I'll figure out how the rest of my life flows around that. Does that make sense? The next thing is generosity. Remember tithe, generosity, and the poor. Generosity is this, irrational giving. That's generosity, irrational giving. I heard about some, some people in our community um, over the past couple weeks who have hosted people in their, in their homes and an irrational number of people and treated them in incredible ways. That's irrational giving. For me, that's hospitality. That, that's people giving of, them, of themselves and their lives. And the next thing is the poor. Meeting literal, physical needs of people in want. I love this. Leslie Newbegin, the, the great missiologist, said this. Live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. Come on. That means there needs to be something reflected in the way you, you interact with the material world and finances that causes such strange questions in people that there's only one answer. It's amazing the way we, we give little cues to our wealth. It could be a timepiece or some shoes or an emblem on a car that for our social standing, whatever our class, our economic class is, it identifies we should be part of this. What happens if you started to just tweak with those symbols a bit? In your economic class, you didn't, you didn't adopt the things that everybody else in your world adopts. What would happen if you just rebelled a bit? Yeah, your pastor's telling you to rebel. What would happen? What would happen? It's provoking questions that only the gospel. You would then, the only thing you can say is Jesus. Why don't I drive the same thing? Yeah, all y'all drive. Jesus. That's it. You know how much I make? Oh, Jesus. Does that make sense? We all work in the same law firm, whatever it is. We all work in the same medical office. I don't know, whatever it is. We're in the same boardroom. Why don't we drive the same? Well, because Jesus. Gospel is the only answer. Three, giving. Giving, and you're giving people. So I'm applauding you. This is not a rebuke. But I do want to teach on this so we, as the people of God, can see this. Amen? So the third antidote is giving. The fourth antidote. This is the final antidote, guys. Hang on. You're, you've done great so far. Identity. Identity. So perspective, praise, giving, identity. And this is what I want to challenge you to do. Remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. John Tyson in his book, The Burden is Light, he, he says, 
He, he lists a hundred things that we are in Christ. I wish I could read all hundred of them. We could just celebrate. But instead, I just want to read a few. Can I? Is that okay? Here's, here's the first 20, 25 or so. I know there's no way you can read all these. The word of God says in Jesus Christ, I am faithful, Ephesians 1.1. I am God's child, John 1.12. I've been justified, Romans 5. I'm Christ's friend, John 15. I belong to God, 1 Corinthians 6. I'm a member of Christ's body, 1 Corinthians 12. I'm assured all things work together for my good, Romans 8. I've been established, anointed, and sealed by God, 2 Corinthians 1. I'm confident that God will perfect the work he's begun in me, Philippians 1. I'm a citizen of heaven, of heaven. Philippians 3, and heaven, wherever that is. I am not, I am hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3. I've not been given a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and self-discipline. Some, some of y'all need to read this every single day over your life to remind yourself who you are. Who you are. I wish we could read all of them. Go to the next slide. Because there's some more. Go to the next slide. And there's some more. Go to the next slide. And there's some more. Go to the next slide. And this is the principle I want you to remember. When we remember who God says we are, we're not consumed by who they say we are. Come on, Ram Church. Why do you need the next or the latest or the greatest or the top or the best? You forgot who he said you are. When you're a citizen of an eternal realm, you really don't care about the opinions of a temporal realm. Come on. My inheritance is in a heavenly place where moth and rust cannot destroy. There is nothing you can say about me that changes that fact. It was paid for with eternal blood. And when that is in you, I'm talking deep in you, it changes everything else. Everything else. When you remember who God says you are, you will not be consumed by who they say you are. Ben, would you go ahead and come on up? Come on, God is worthy. I just want to circle this back to the beginning and give you those three steps. Can I do that for you? Three steps. This is the first step. This is what I want you to do. This is practical. Is this too practical for you today? Is this helping you? Step one, I want you to reflect on your current vision of the perfect Christmas. Was that vision created by those marketers? Like when that Waitrose ad comes on and there's like mince pies and like beautiful living room that I will probably never own. Is there something in you that, it, that, that has that created a vision? You have a vision. Something fills your mind when you think and your heart about what's perfect and what's ideal. Who created that? You need to reflect on it. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's time to examine it. 
if whether you realize it, whether you examine it or reflect on it or not, you're living out of it, you're pursuing it, you're seeking it. It's what's driving your actions and your decisions. So after you reflect on it, then do this. Reset your imagination with, with, with Jesus-centered values. Jesus lived his life with a different imagination. It's why he says in Matthew 6, I know you're worried about all this. I know you're consumed with all this. Seek first the kingdom and my righteousness. I'll take care of all this stuff. What's he trying to do? There's a different thing that can fill your imagination. What, is the, what are the furnishings of your imagination? It's time to clear house and get some new furniture. And it probably didn't come from Sweden and it's flat packed. It's just a metaphor, guys. And a bad joke. But you get it. What's furnishing your imagination? It's time to reset that with Jesus' inner values. And then, then, then this final thing, this final step. Set your plan and commit to it with accountability. Some of you, some of you go, well, I, you know, I'm not married. How can I keep it? Some of you single people, just get, get with friends. Share your budget, literally your, your Christmas budget with your friends. I know that's radical. Let other people know. Here's what I got. I don't want to spend 112% of it. I probably don't want to spend 100% of it. Set a plan that's based on a Jesus-centered value system that involves giving, that involves not seeking status, but what Jesus finds most important and commit to it and ask someone to keep you accountable. Check on me come January 1st. Call me up and go, whoa, well, what'd you spend? What'd you spend? What'd you do? How'd you go? Painful. I'm hearing painful from the front row. It's painful. Some of you are already like, this is, this is not what I came to church for today. <laughs> Just want a little bless me and leave. If you want to walk in blessing, we have to also walk in wisdom. Amen. Stand to your feet.